Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. The Middle East is plagued by endless conflicts and proxy wars between nations that can look more similar than different to the outside observer. Its greatest internal fault line is the split between Sunni and Shia. Why did this schism happen? How have two rival interpretations of history shaped the region? Which ethnic and linguistic divisions are at the heart of its current struggles? This is a topic and historical period I knew so little about. Thankfully, we have Barnaby Rogerson, author of The House Divided, to guide us through these murky waters. We spend a lot of time laying the historical foundation in our conversation, but I think you'll come away with a clear sense of how events in the distant past shaped the maps and conflicts of today. Barnaby was my first podcast guest, so it's fitting that he's also my first returning guest. In his previous appearance, we spoke about his work as co-publisher of Elan Books, the essential British institution that's been resurrecting lost travel classics and keeping them in print for more than 35 years. He's been a great supporter of personal landscapes, and it's a pleasure to welcome him back. Welcome back to you, too, for this first episode of 2024. I hope you had a happy new year. I was traveling in Uzbekistan, and you can read about that on my blog if you like. But first, let's talk to Barnaby. So you wrote an earlier book, quite a detailed one, about the Sunni-Shia schism called The Heirs of the Prophet Muhammad. Why did you decide to revisit the topic? As you know, because you're one of the few interviewers that one has confidence that you've actually read the books that you're involved in, that stops pretty much with the fourth, uh, the, the four caliphs. And um, obviously, I even then had ambitions to write about the medieval era, but that was a, enough of a book. And um, so the motivation was to catch up with modern politics in this book. And then the publisher said, do you mind going over the stuff? I know you've already written in two other books because I've done a, a biography of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the heirs of the Prophet. And so, as you know, I, I had to revisit that. And um, it was enjoyable. Yeah, it's impossible to, um, I think, to talk about the present day without revisiting it because, I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about this topic. So I, I think that would be a good place to start because I assume my listeners wouldn't know either. So what's the literal meaning of Sunni and Shia? Like, what do the terms mean? Well, Sunni basically is is the safe pathway um, from a lovely old sort of Arabic tone that puts you into the geography of going across the desert and, and keeping to the, the safe passage of life. And Shia is a Shiat um, Ali, which is the the party of of Ali. So it's quite specific the terms. Both, as you dig further, are contradictory because the Shia believe in following a safe path, and the Sunni love Ali as well. But to begin with, one feels one's got some useful labels. So, what's the difference in religious practices between them then? Absolutely none. So the exact same details of the Hajj pilgrimage all loyally, dutifully, piously, following the exact example of the Prophet Muhammad in the last day of his, uh, the last year of his life, and the prayer rituals as established by him. If you know an immense about Islamic prayer rituals, there's a moment where the Shia briefly put their hands on the side and the Sunni might cross them, but it's not true to all. Um, it's, it's like a sort of, it's so minor, it's so obscure. And what's uh, very exciting and, and quite, extraordinary is word for word exactly the same quran 
It's interesting. Uh, well, this is a bit of an aside, but speaking of differences, I found this really interesting. You write that uh, the verses of the Quran are divided into two quite different tones, the verses revealed at Mecca and those that were delivered later in Medina. Could you say something about that, about these differences? Yes, that's incredibly important, but also as one digs, gets more confusing because the Quran was entirely an oral, you can't even use the word document, um, a recitation in the life of the prophet and the first two successors. So the Quran existed as something chanted by the whole community joining in, in all night prayer sessions. And that still continued that tradition in Ramadan. For those who've been lucky enough to be in Islamic city, you'll, the mosque will be open and some of the, the best, the most famous recites of the Quran will spend the month taking a 30th or the 40th of the Quran and keeping it alive in the night. And if you've ever attended there, you've got, a wonderful key to understanding what the Quran was in its first um, stage of life, which was this recitation. And what's really important for a Muslim, all Muslims of all branches, all faiths, is the Prophet Muhammad is no more than a mouthpiece. The Quran is literally the word of God, and Muhammad is his chosen mouthpiece. And that takes you, you know, into into somewhere sort of very holy. So you said that the the earlier verses, the Meccan verses, sort of address any age and body of mankind. They have a strong, a, a universal appeal where the uh, verses that, that came down from Medina were more specific, detailed, and dealt with political problems uh, faced by that community at that time. So are, are they interpreted differently in terms of how to go about living your life today? No, um, it's, it's a very good question because... Um, there is a sort of a heresy within Islam which would try and venerate the Meccan verses as something much purer of the expression of the divine will. And Medina is very clearly addressing the issues of running a faith. Because the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca was a persecuted individual. Um, and we've we've got a a sketch of his biography in that period, but it comes really detailed and tightly focused in Medina. Um, from uh, historical descriptions of the, of the campaigns, conversations, you 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 get a much tighter focus of the Prophet Muhammad's life in Medina, and later on, some very quick commentaries were made about um, the response, where these verses were coming from, sometimes dealing with specific issues, but then there's something else that an outsider who's not a Muslim should respect, is that over the lifetime of the Prophet, the verses were perfected. And um, typically, the last recitation of the Quran was, was not a brand new chapter. It was just um, two or three lines to an additional recitation. So that's rather fascinating, is the Mecca's got these much shorter, much more universalist, much more direct calls to the deity and to you know, be free from sin and the day of judgment. I mean, the whole of Islam is there. Nothing changes, but Medina tend to be much longer the verses and much more specific uh, advice about how you're going to organize the recognition of your children, how you're going to divide your wealth, that sort of thing. Much more the sort of uh, the practice of a Muslim. So you say that the verses were sort of refined or or um, not not reworked, but over time, was that was that uh, through Muhammad himself, or yeah. un unlike the Bible, which was was um, kind of refined and reinterpreted by later editors, so to speak. So no one dares um, touch 
what the Prophet Muhammad has recited. But um, he adds, perfects, develops various chapters over his life from, from my understanding. And for, for listeners, when was this finally codified into a written form? So what happens is the community is, is so busy with war and organization, civil war and strife during the Caliph Abu Bakr and Omar. And it's only when those conquests have been achieved, and there's some sense of military stability, is the decision made to write down the Quran under the chairmanship of the third Caliph, um, Uthman, loathed by the Shia. But it's clear that Ali worked side by side in this, not exactly editorial committee, but this sort of committee of, of uh, really early Muslims so that they didn't forget or overlook or or add any anything. So that is um, 20 years after the death of the Prophet, and we're beginning to get the first um, written documents. Mm. So much, much earlier than the, the biblical gospels were compiled. Yes, much closer yes. to his life. Is that, that, that is it true that um, the is that the oldest Quran is the one in um, Tashkent, the Uthman Quran, the one that you've just seen. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to go over to one. see it. No, we were we were you west didn't. of Tashkent most of the time. No, I just heard about it. I I went to see it. It's too vast to be historically um, likely to be made in the Hejaz. Quite poor. I, from my understanding, some of the earliest fragments of dateable uh, sort of paper and ink is um, tucked up um, so they couldn't be damaged after Quran was worn out. The same thing happened for Jewish and probably in Christian monasteries. They didn't want to defile the word of God by using the paper to wrap up sort of butter or state of fire. So pushed up into the attic of the, of the mosque in Sana. And I think those are the uh, earliest sort of dateable bits of paper. Hmm. I suppose that the first copies would have been on vellum or something like this, would it? Indeed, you can almost you know you can almost see the shape of of the animal. Quite small, the ones uh, the fragments I've seen. Well, the one in Tashkent is vast and imperial and looks sort of dare I say thirteenth century. Okay. Marvelous, but very important for Sunni because Uthman. I don't want to jump into story too quickly, but uh, many people object to his practice as a politician, but everybody adores his role as the collector and editor and publisher of the Quran, and he will die, his blood spattering the first copy of the Quran. So it's sort of the, the, the Uthman, that first sort of codex, has got its own sort of extraordinary tragic fate. So you've covered such an enormous amount of ground in this book, and we, we can't possibly touch on all of it, but I think we should spend some time on that, those early historical roots of the schism, because it's so obscure to most people, I think. So I also can bring in some questions from your earlier book, if that's okay. So you said that there are two different historical narratives in Islam, the Shia version and the Sunni version, and that these were codified into rival interpretations of history some 200 years after the death of Muhammad. And they don't even agree on uh, the circumstances of his death. They, there's quite a lot of, of shared narrative. I mean, there are different traditions. Famously, uh, some people, Sunni, believe that Prophet Muhammad died leaning on the shoulder of his beloved wife, Aisha. And Lucia believed that he was supported um, leaning against uh, um, Imam Ali. But they literally could both be true. They're both just selecting their own heroes to, to see the vision. Um, the, the close narrative of events around the death of the Prophet is quite similar to both sides. We know he went out to 
to pray um, amongst the graves after there was a dispute about the gathering of the next force going to Syria, comes back with a headache and is then um, not in the condition to lead the prayers for the first time in his life, living in the hut of Aisha, agreed by both sides, although the Shia Epsi loathe Aisha, that's, that's not disputed. And then he dies. And then Ali, as the closest male relative, um, has the job, which is continues to this day, of washing, preparing your male relative for the grave. And it's in that period when he's busy doing that, that task of respect that the coup of the Sunni happened when Abu Bakr and Omar get acclaimed as successors. And although I'm not a Muslim, but very, very impassionately engaged in the subject, I have a feeling, and many Muslims do as well, that if there had been a general assembly of all the warriors, all the early converts to Islam, and they were asked to vote or acclaim the leader, it would have had to have gone to Ali. And so uh, the word coup is obviously a bit offensive for Sunni, but events did happen that put in um, Abu Bakr and Omar in the, instead of Ali. You said that there was also um, been some debate over the meaning of Muhammad's farewell sermon, that Shias believe uh, Muhammad held up the hand of Ali and as a declaration of him as his successor, but the Sunni believe that he was simply choosing Ali to be the leader of his kinship group. Uh, why would that distinction be important? That's a um, very good question, Ryan. Um, it's absolutely the, if you had to find one speck of sand that creates the pearl of the differences, it's that moment. Gardahum, after leading his the last Hajj pilgrimage, the Prophet Muhammad um, going from Mecca back home to Medina, journey of about 10 days. So they stop, you know, the, the pilgrimage caravan, the Hajj caravan, at a number of well-known campsites. One of them is Gardahum, which is known as a place where fresh water is, is held back by the rocks. It was a, a popular stopping off point. And at that place, the, the great um, saddlebags were piled up to make a sort of informal rostrum. And the Prophet Muhammad and the Sunni and Shia both believe this, acclaimed um, Ali in front of everybody as his successor. The Sunni think or argue that it was specifically just the successor to the male clan, the Beni Hashim, one of the um, uh, the clan fractions of the Quraysh tribe. The Shia thinks um, or passionately believes it's a universal um, moment where the Prophet Muhammad is aware and they also believe that that instance was, was when the last revelation of the Quran came to the Prophet Muhammad. So it's sealing um, the, the revelation. His, his job as a prophet is over. And on the same day, he designates Ali to be the emir, the commander of the army, the imam, the leaders, and, and to take uh, the, the, the vision that he's recited forward for the next generation. So if you have to just ask a Muslim at what moment do you believe or not believe, Gardahum is absolutely that decisive moment. And it gives Shia a sort of added passion because, as we spoke earlier, the word of the Quran is the word of God. And so if the last phrase of the Quran is also tied in with this witnessing of this decision, has completed his task, Ali, we're not talking about the wars of the roses between who should be the rightful monarch. This is a God-designated decision. And so for the Shia, there's no, it's not us choosing, you know, worrying about which is the better man or which is the earlier Muslim or this or that, the other. This was part of the divine plan.
And so you've said in your earlier book that you believe it was Aisha who formed the core of opposition to Ali becoming the caliph. So where, where did this uh, ill will between them come from? I mean, first, could you say who she was as well for people who don't know? Yes, um, Aisha is the most beloved um, of this of 11 wives of the prophet and the one of all the characters who comes out strongest in the traditions. And the Shia absolutely loathe her. Think of her as a sort of Morgan Le Fay sort of character who really disturbed the household of the prophet. But as an outsider, she comes out as vivacious, totally in love um, with the Prophet Muhammad she'd known all her life. Her father's Abu Bakr, one of the closest companions of the Prophet Muhammad. She's absolutely sort of brought up in Islam, but has got this sort of vivacious sort of honesty about herself. And there was a moment where it was the Prophet Muhammad's habit, even on campaign, to, to, to take um, two wives with him and to he would always... Uh, ricochets and spend one night with one wife, one with another. And I think they were sort of almost like a form of sort of, uh, sort of inner advice. You really, really love the company of women. But on this particular campaign, um, Aisha, who's very light, um, goes off uh, with the court of nature. And when she returns, the caravan is gone. And so she's left. And, um, and as everybody does, in that such a situation, you go back to the last site of your encampment, knowing that when you're missed, people will send back uh, a messenger to uh, that last known rendezvous. Uh, but before that happens, she's picked up by a, a passing Bedouin who knows who she is and respectfully escorts her back to the, the Muslim force. But people, um, being what they are, um, whisper about this moment. And it coincides with Muhammad going back to Medina and celebrating um, a new marriage. So he's removed from Aisha. And the gossip builds up that uh, the Prophet is um, dissatisfied with, with Aisha. She goes, catches a fever, goes and retires and spends some time with her parents. And it's a sort of a sort of crisis moment in the Prophet's life when he believes a direct revelation will, will come soon and clear up the issue. And, and nothing happens. So instead, he starts asking advice amongst his companions about uh, what's happened. Ali doesn't say anything bad about Aisha. He just mentions you've got many women already. And by inference, you know, why bother with this one who's making so much trouble? And Aisha never forgets that moment. And then shortly afterwards, there is a divine uh, revelation that clears Aisha and also establishes um, very emphatic rules for how adultery should be judged and how many witnesses you need and every other sort of thing. But the 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 seed of their rivalry was definitely embedded in that known historical instance, made even more complicated by the fact that Ali is married to Fatima, the Prophet Muhammad's one of the Prophet Muhammad's four daughters, and has two children, the only male. Uh, children in the household of the prophet. The prophet himself is very, very keen, I believe, to have a male child. And none of his uh, wives uh, produce um, any any child that uh, survives outside its infancy. So Aisha, who's longing, longing probably to have a male son to, uh, to show and to share with the prophet Muhammad, watches as Fatima brings up these two beloved grandson of the prophet. And you could, you don't have to know much about human nature to know that that is almost an unforgivable bridge between the, 
the wife who can't have a child looking at someone who can. And um, so I'm, as I talk, I'm, I'm almost sounding more like a sort of French court gossip than, you know, Islamic historian. But it's so lively and everybody in the Muslim know, world knows these stories. Um, and and it, it, Aisha is part of the family. I mean, the person you spit at and curse if you're Shia, the person who you love and lots of traditions if you're Sunni, well knowing that she's a, a minxy character all at the same time. I mean, history is all about people and this is what makes your book so interesting. It brings these uh, kind of murky events to life and and puts uh, human faces on them. Is it the male line that that uh, inherits the name in, in these cultures? So having So Ali would be the the uh, source of all further descendants of Muhammad? Um, because the Prophet doesn't have any male children, Ali is going to be, not only is he Prophet Muhammad's cousin, but he's adopted into the Prophet Muhammad's household as a young boy, so grew up as as a sort of, almost a stepson, but actually a close cousin. And the further uh, tightening is that um, Prophet Muhammad, as a boy himself, was adopted into the household of Ali's father. Um, so it's a really close bond. Ali is the first professed male Muslim to be a believer and was in the house of the Prophet throughout all of those um, Meccan first recitations. So he he's sort of almost like a stepbrother to the Quran. So he knows every instance. And then he marries Fatima as Hassan Hussein. All the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad come from those two uh, sons, Hassan and Hussein. So his role genealogically is absolutely vital, but that wouldn't have made him the absolute sort of uh, known successor, partly because the Arabs aren't so obsessed by us about primogeniture and like to have a descendant, but like to, um, whether you're a tribal sheikh or whatever, you're looking at the a pool of people who will be suitable, and then a choice is made. For instance, the, the Saudi kingdom, that is, is what has happened as people have worked through um, the the sons of, uh, of Saud, but chose which one they thought would be the rightful um, sort of chair, as were the tribe. So you've described Ali as a figure crafted from the purest principles of honor, truth, bravery, and faith. Uh, he, he struck me as a great spiritual leader, but maybe not such a great political leader compared to the, the caliphs, the first two caliphs. Yes, it's so extraordinary is that Ali is so adored because not only does he witness the Quran, but he's one of the bravest young warriors in the first battles of, of when the Muslims were um, uh, fighting the, the pagans. Uh, he's poor, he's hardworking, he's upholding the, uh, the family and, and the sort of household of the prophet. So he's got this, by European standards, this extraordinary sort of chivalrous knight he's also literate unlike most of uh, the other early followers of of the prophets so you've got a sort of extraordinary comp uh, combination of poverty literacy high-born but hard-working character which makes ali irresistibly attractive and whether you're sunni or shia all of the equivalent of trade unions craft guilds all look to ali as the sort of ancestor of their traditions all the Sufi brotherhoods, bar the one you've recently seen in Central Asia, the Naqshbandi, um, trace their sort of spiritual descent from Ali. So he's got this extraordinary spiritual role. But when, again, when you look at the history, when he finally becomes the fourth caliph of the Sunni, 
he's faced with a, a civil war situation. And in all honor and fairness to him, he was the one figure who could stop that civil war. But in fact, the dynamics of a conquest state were about to, to turn in on itself. And there's going to be a rivalry between the military governors, the uh, conquering governor general. So he presides not over this sort of golden sort of age of sort of of the true Islamic Commonwealth, but of a, of a series of, of 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 desperate struggles. So I want to ask you about how how they got to that point. So about the the spread of religion by the sword, in a sense, you write that the Arab conquest of the Middle East in in the name of Islam is one of the most decisive events in Mediterranean and Asian history, but it's also one of the least understood. Like we know more about some the campaigns of Hannibal than we do about this time. So why do you think that is? I think that there is only, I think one can't understand it unless, which I haven't gone into in this book or any of the other books, you look at the total chaos, the absolute internecine violence of the Sasanian and, and Byzantine empires. And they have destroyed each other to the extent that you know, the Sasanian army besieging um, Constantinople and at the same time, you know, the, the whole of the Byzantine Empire is sort of under occupation, but yet uh, the Byzantine Emperor takes an army. It's like a mad risk game where everybody's rushing vast armies across each other's territories, plague and everything else. And they've just fought each other to a complete bloody standstill. And also in the process, I think absolutely vital to understand, they so disenchanted the people of the Middle East as Byzantine armies, the Sassanian armies wing backwards and forwards, um, always hurting the cities and, and the poor peasants, that when the Arabs come, they are actually liberators. And so although they fight um, battles and win, they come as a Semitic sort of third force who very early on, because of their the Quraysh's sort of understanding of trade routes, make really good, decent compacts with the conquered people who I think are tremendously relieved by the Arabs. They've, um, they're cheaper, lighter, more decent, more honest than the previous empires that have destroyed them. And of course, that would be a European answer. If you're a Muslim, it's these extraordinary armies of, of, of the faith given sort of direction, unity, for the first time, this extraordinary resource of tens of thousands of hardened warriors from Arabia are united under one leadership and given a passionate mission. What is interesting is that there's no technology. You know, you can look at you know medieval cavalry. You can look at the longbow. You can look at the invention of gunpowder, and there you can see. You can look at Greek fire um, in the Byzantine navy, and there you can see a clear technological advantage which allows an empire to dominate. There is nothing in the Arab armies that gives them any technical. Uh, superiority over the Byzantine and Persian armies. They're using the same swords. You know, their soldiers might be tougher. They could live off the ground, but that's it. So, what would you chalk up their military success to? This, this is they exploded in such an astonishing fashion and so quickly over such a vast territory. Um, I, I think it is. It is that is the um, catastrophic state of political life in the Middle East. So, Egypt, Syria. The cities there are very quick to accept the Arab conquests, make a treaty. The Arabs aren't the least bit interested in taking over the cities, but running their own quite separate armed camps. So it all fits in rather neatly. And I think the Arabs are just unleashed as an extraordinary power on, on these broken um, empires. And, you know, 
you could wander in the Middle East. You could still see the campsites of these first Arab conquest armies. Oh. So, you know, sort of Fustat, uh, Ufa, you, 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 you're treading on, on the history of these extraordinary rapid conquests. So where are we at um, sort of geographically with this, the expansion of this world by the time of the death of the prophet? So um, just if we can all imagine the sort of rectangle of the Arabian Peninsula, the Red Sea coast is where Mecca Medina is, and that's the heartland of, of, of the Islamic um, state that the Prophet Muhammad creates. But by sending out um, expeditions and embassies, he managed to get agreement from pretty much every organized Arabic-speaking community in his lifetime, Oman, Yemen, um, El Hassa, Eastern Arabia, up to the frontiers of Jordan and Syria, which remain under Byzantine Sasanian garrisons when he dies. So you've got, in modern parlance, Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, Oman and the Yemen, all acknowledging the Prophet Muhammad as a prophet and agreeing to pay this very small um, zakat, arms to, um, annual arms, which will go to the center, goes to Medina, and allows the prophet to look after widows, orphans, and, you know, a sort of a central resource, a central charitable exchange. And then it was the first and second caliphs expanded this territory greatly. So take, take us through um, that, if you could, briefly. Um, the the dates are much dis uh, disputed, but Abu Bakr uh, is immediately faced with, after the death of Prophet, he's um, acknowledged as as the new leader, and all the Arab tribes, you know, said, "Well, we made a, we made a promise to Prophet Muhammad to make a promise to you," and he's faced with pretty much uh, everybody sort of looking at their feet, and so he's forced right from day one to wage a war of revitalization. So the the community that he potentially inherited from Prophet Muhammad, he has to reconquer. And so this is possibly the seed of the whole Arab conquest. Abu Bakr, using the uh, tribal, his knowledge of, of tribal politics, sends out uh, Muslim armies to reconquer, which is just to re-accept the um, uh, submission to Islam and the agreement to pay this tax, which is his line in the sand. He knows that you you need evidence, um, which is the, the form of this charitable tax, to show you're the part of this community. And at the same time, there are rival um, prophets emerge in Eastern Arabia, and some of the fiercest battles are fought against um, these rival prophets. And then from that engagement of this victory, um, from all the tribes, Abu Bakr starts sending um tribal armies out from Medina, assembling in, in key points of the Islamic world to conquer Syria and Jordan. And at the Battle of Muta during the Prophet Muhammad's life, that was a, a great defeat for a Muslim raiding force or um, under his um, stepson Zaid. And so Abu Bakr was following directly in the example um, set by the Prophet Muhammad. Indeed, on that last uh, year of his life, the Prophet Muhammad was assembling an army two or three miles outside of Medina in, in a camp ready to do what Abu Bakr does. And then when Abu Bakr dies, Omar takes over. They work hand in glove and they continue this process of gathering the young men, coming to Medina, giving them a flag and a commander and sending them out 
um, to the war frontiers and um, bit by bit in a very sort of hands-on fashion, the various commanders in the front win these titanic battles against the Byzantine legions. Um, um, Amar ibn al-As takes over Egypt with comparative ease, but there are succession of battles fought um, against the Byzantines and um, and also Persians. Some of them go on for three or four days. There's, there's some dispute in the details of this, how much we're looking at sort of legends of Arab chivalry put back on specific dates and how much can really be taken as military history. If you want to look more in this, Hugh Kennedy, the reigning professor of Arabic uh, in, in UCL London and SOAS has done a lot of it. And also um, what's very intriguing for those who, who doubt it is there are lots of, or there still are biographies of some of the earliest Muslims being translated, which give details of this period. But what's very clear is at the end of the conquest period, Omar had already made the decision not to integrate the Muslim forces, not to them to go and live um, in the Christian and, and the um, Jewish quarters, but establish their own cities. So they're very much in the way of the Roman Empire. The, the legion, the, the Arab force, is going to live as pure Muslims in new settlements, be paid for by this, um, this annual tax by the conquered, subdued people who are they are protecting, but they're going to live uh, apart. And what we don't understand, but I think we will work out more and more, was how clever the Arabic commanders were in co-opting local tribes to come on side, to become their patron, uh, become patrons of client tribes. So the speed of those conquests makes no sense unless you think actually there were some really embedded local allies, both in North Africa and in Iran and Afghanistan, who become, and we'll see that later, included in the early Islamic State. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's It would be impossible to to consolidate territory that quickly unless you're using the existing ruling structures. And there is, there are, uh, recently listened to some lectures about the development, which again is, is new archaeology backing this up, how much was happening in terms of desert technology, this silver mines, both in Arabia, but also on the whole string of North Africa. In the period before the Arab conquest, there would have been lots of trade routes and movements on the desert fringes, just the sort of routes that the Arab armies of conquest will develop and use, which defy the old Mediterranean-based, port-based civilization, because we're looking at the development of a new economy. And that's I, I, not over my life, but I imagine this will be an area of scholarship which will grow more and more as the Arab conquest actually was following filaments of trade and the Quraysh, this leadership tribe of, of Islam, were famous as cross-country traders um, running the route from Yemen to Syria. But I think their knowledge of all of these other desert routes or their knowledge of the people who knew about these routes was very profound and probably one of the the absolute secrets of their tactical success. So in line with this um, this dynamic of the, the tribes that uh, that conquer such vast territories, you say that the first caliph, Abu Bakr, was aware that the total victory of Islam would within Arabia would put intolerable pressure on the social dynamic of the tribes. Like These were tribes where raids and uh, feuds and blood vengeance were quite a normal part of daily life, it's, it's too deeply uh, embedded to be eradicated from the culture. So maintaining the peace meant turning those energies outwards. Is this akin to um, 
Genghis Khan or Timur, their need to deliver constant victories to their followers in order to keep sort of an unstable political entity together? This would be supposition rather than theology right. or, or written thing. But I strongly believe that um, inherited this extraordinary martial society where clan battles, tribal battles, interfamily battles were absolutely, you know, de rigueur for male existence, where unlike today where you have bored young men um, doing video games, it was intensely alive being a young man because your major job was looking after the herds and that needed constant vigilance because every clan almost as a form of sort of friendship would be raiding each other. I mean, if you're not, if you don't know the Arabian um, landscape, just imagine the sort of Scottish clan system where young men were constantly, for the fun of it, going off to lift each other's cattle, the same as in Ireland. And you had to be constantly vigilant, and sometimes you missed it, and you raided back. And so we now think of, you know, the wars that are raging as we speak are much more violent than these almost sort of intense rugger matches with cattle. Um, which was the basis of, of tribal society. And we're talking about places just like Ireland, Scotland, where the wealth was in cattle. There was always seed planting and there was always harvest in the oasis. But the real quantifiable wealth of a clan was highly mobile. Um, and so this is a sort of the background. These young men um, now needed a direction, were given a direction by the Sunni caliphs. I think that spirit still continues. I did a, a trip in Jordan years ago for a travel magazine with uh, some Bedouins uh, by camel. And I suggested, you know, why don't we raid the Hejaz railway while we're out here? So give me something to write about. <laughs> and he said, yeah, we don't do that anymore. And I turned around and pointed at a well and said, where did you get this railway tie for the well then? <laughs> he just changed the subject. So <laughs> I think that spirit is, is alive and well. Yes. And I think, you know, there's endless analysis of, you know, the rise of, of, of this sort of militant group or, or that. I think, if you do remember the excitement of being at the boredom of being a young man uh, stuck in a flat, but if you're given a Jeep and a machine gun and a turban and can rush off to the desert, why wouldn't you uh, want to do that? Um, that energy, um, that delight uh, uh, is in us all. Yeah. So you said that Islam has been at war with itself ever since Uthman, the third caliph, was killed. Uh, the, se the second Omar was also assassinated, wasn't he? Yes. Omar's assassinated. And in this slight sort of fix up um uthman is given the job um uthman is revered as uh, the man the prophet muhammad trusted so much that he gave two daughters uh so he's very closely allied um to the prophet but he's from this um very wealthy clan within the Quraysh. he's very very well connected he's the equivalent of a you know much of his word but he's a sort of millionaire he's the uh the trust fund um, element of the early Islamic society. And so people are, are used to treating him as a chair. He's not a great warrior. Uh, one of his most generous acts was when Ali was a poor warrior, hadn't got enough money, um, the, the diary for Fatima. And um, Uthman um, volunteers to um, buy the, the armor and the, the sword of Ali for exactly the right sum that he needs to have as, as a dowry, as a respectful young man. And then as a wedding present, gives this back to Ali. So it shows, shows the sort of the nobility of a sort of tribal sheikh. And, and that's Uthman's characters. My Shia friends absolutely won't have me say anything nice about him. He is the absolute uh, stick for them. But you can see the first seven years of his 
caliphate. It was rather efficient. This man of who understood the workings of tribal society, very efficient in dealing with governors, establishing wells, working out um, dam systems for the spates that always attack Mecca and Medina. And as we know, working on this incredibly important task for the Muslim community of collecting the oral traditions, the oral recitation, not traditions, oral recitation of the Quran into a written document and getting everybody's agreement on it. Um, so he's he's doing a job, but one of the great weaknesses of all Muslim societies is their tremendous passionate loyalty and love of their families. And I think it's the biggest single identifiable difference between the Middle East and the West is the Middle East, everybody loves children, they love your grandmother, you love your mother, you respect your cousins. They're just people, it's just at the center of their lives, their, their family, not their careers, not their professional dignity. That's that's a second. And I think we, certainly the English, can't um, understand this um, um, strongly enough. And I'm afraid Uthman had it in spades, this loyalty to his clan. And when he's given the chance of choosing another governor for a new conquered province or taking over time and time again, his own clan, his own immediate cousinage, gets given the preference. And eventually people feel confident enough to start questioning him. Uh, he's not the sort of man who likes that. He's got a, a court of embedded cousins advising him. And things are getting more and more sticky um, as this already existing wealthy clan seems to be creaming off all the all the tough posts um, and, and the lucrative positions of governor of Syria, uh, governor of Egypt, governor the the two conquest cities of um, of Iraq, all the prime posts are there, and so there there is a virtual mutiny because every Hajj every every year there's an opportunity for the garrison cities to send delegations, respectful delegations coming to Mecca, and for a natural communication to happen um, with the chiefs. There's a row near mutiny. Um, Uthman sort of tidies it up. But in the process of the caravans going back to their garrison cities, there's a message, and we don't know to this day if it's from him or from one of his cousins, um, giving instructions for them to be punished when they return. And that suddenly turns what was a sort of argy-bargy into blood. And the, um, the military um, convoys intercept this message, come back and besiege um, Uthman's house and finally um, break in. And he's uh, you know, stabbed in the head and bleeds over that first edition of the Quran. So there's virtual uh, fitna, civil war um, between his clan and, and these um, near-mutinous army. And the only person with any respect who, in, in the eyes of the Shia, should have been claimed right from hour one, minute one, day one, is Ali, but he's the only one also trusted by both uh, the, all the clans of the Quraysh, but also by these potentially rebellious, uh, rebellious forces. And so, but Ali then becomes uh, the fourth Sunni caliph, a Shia have always acknowledged him, in the middle of this sort of civil war mutinous situation. Further complicated because the various clan cousins in their uh, military governorships uh, do not want to surrender their posts and start manipulating uh, the situation to, to their position. So you've said that within a generation after the death of the Prophet, the rule of the Enlightened is finished. That's at this point. And 
the tough-minded generals, the scheming politicians, the police chiefs, and the old dynasties are are kind of back in the seats of power again. This is the this is the moment that it all starts to fall apart. And both sides agree on this, Sunni and Shia, but the difference is in how speedily they think it fell apart. One believes it happened right at the moment Muhammad dies or soon after his death, and then the others believe that it happens right at this point, after the third caliph. Yes, it's very important, um, not particularly as an outsider, to overstress the differences. You know, the same Quran, the same prayer ritual, the same adoration of the Prophet, and also the same slightly gloomy view of Islamic history. We're all obsessed by the um, Abbasid and Umayyad caliphs and the great imperial dynasties of early Islam and the great buildings. But if you're a, a Sunni and Shia scholar, these are all the bad guys who took over from the good guys who are the spiritually directed close companions of the prophet living a life of a, of a pure Muslim in Medina. And it's very interesting. The, the Sunni tend to celebrate these Arab conquests of the caliphate and almost turn them into sort of spiritual heroes. And the Shia um, have got another tradition because they realize that Ali was never involved in any of these wars of conquests, none of the close companions. And just make a little bit of a difference. And it's very tempting for a zealous sort of young Sunni to say, look what happened. You know, in, in, in the in the great days of the the first caliphs, we conquered a vast empire of faith and we were top dog in the world. But the Shia are, are less cautious, are very cautious about combining military success with uh, the true path. So there's a there's a distinction. These these things are always very subtle and um Hardly worth writing down as as theology, but they definitely are a mood in every conversation I've had. So this this initial um, war within Islam did it initially focus on Sunni versus Shia, and how did that play out uh, up up to now? Because we still see these conflicts of Sunni versus Shia today. Yes. So um, the the first, at least in fact, um, faced with. First conquest of, of Aisha can't bear the idea of um, of Ali being chosen as caliph, and gets the um, motivates um, a small war, a rebellion in in Iraq, and um, Ali has to deal with that. Um, Abu Bakr's own son Muhammad is such a devoted uh, follower of Ali that at the end of this famous um, the Battle of the Camel, when they no one wants to harm Aisha. Um, but they they managed to um, sort of arrest her camel and, and kill the warriors who are guarding her. Uh, Muhammad, the son of Abu Bakr, is given the, the task of taking the camel with Aisha, the penitent Aisha, having led the first instinctive rebellion against Ali um, back to ret a sorrowful retirement in Medina. And then uh, the bigger problem is Muayyah, this brilliant, the so-called Caesar of the Arabs, uh, commanding the military garrisons in Syria on the Byzantine frontier, really good Arab general, really ace commander, uh, sort of Arab shaped every core of his body. So very easy to respect as a military leader, uh, but is a cousin of of Uthman and claims the right of 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 blood vengeance um, as a tool to keep himself in authority until that blood vengeance is, is delivered. And then starts manipulating the other governors, worried about Ali's piety, purity. You know, the the days of of overwhelming salaries will be gone, and to, begins to get the sort of frontline generals with him against Ali. 
there's this um, famous um, battle um, fought um, or sort of standoff fought um, in what is close to the uh, Syrian and Iraqi frontier, um, separated just when Moira thinks you might lose the day. Um, the, the two sides have a truce. The Qurans are held up on, on lances. But Moira, with his sort of dark vizier tricks, manipulates uh, uh, the truce-making. Ali is too decent, too honorable a man to understand he's dealing with very, very trickstery um, characters. But in the process, the so-called Karajites, those who go out, the most militant of Ali's supporters, are infuriated with any form of truce or any sort of parley with the people they think um, uh, are evil Muslims. And Ali is forced to deal with them. And that's a sort of tragic moment when he has to turn his army against his own most devoted followers who become this quite separate tradition in Islam, the, the Karajites that in your travels, have you been to the Mazab oasis no. in Algeria or in the inner Amman, uh, Isle of Jerba, mm. still exist as a separate tradition. Um, and in the so in the end, there's a sort of standoff, really, with um, Muayyah left in command of Egypt, Syria, the sort of military frontier, and Ali ruling um, the sort of central Arabia and southern Iraq um, before he himself is murdered. And Muayyah takes over the, the whole. So Muayyah is the, the fifth caliph, not an orthodox figure of spiritual or theological importance, but he is the fifth ruler to dominate this Arab conquest empire and rules it from Damascus and creates the, the Umayyad dynasty. And we all know about their buildings, you know, the Dome of the Rock, that fabulous great mosque in Damascus. The Omiyad Empire stretches from Samarkand to uh, to Spain, you know, from Poitiers, um, this vast expanse, bigger than anything Rome or the Persian Empire had been able to succeed, is is under one um, glittering rule, um, slow replacement of the of Arabic over the other official scripts of Greek and Latin and Persian, and you have a recognizable Arabic Empire again keeping these um, garrison armies separate from the cities, paid for, very like Roman legions, from the, the taxes the people they're protecting. I know we spent a lot of time on what might seem like ancient history to people, but it didn't end there. Like these, This division still exists today, and it shapes our current map of the world. So how, how does the, the current map split between Sunni and Shia? Fast forwarding to now, um, if you imagine uh, the central Middle East, the great Shia uh, nation is Iran, and then it spills over in north. Azerbaijan is Shia. The elements of Shia and sort of Alevi Shia belief in southeastern Turkey. There are Shia in Lebanon, and they're a surprise um, to most people. They're Shia in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, um, neighboring the Gulf, and as we all probably know, um, the Iraq is sort of two-thirds Shia now. So that's the sort of coloration. All of North Africa uh, now is Sunni. So is Egypt. So militantly is Saudi Arabia. Um, and um, Turkey is um, Sunni. And the region you've just been in, in Central Asia is very, very Sunni. Um, never had any tap with that. But in the rest of the world is equally complex. There are quite large Shia minorities in 
um, Pakistan, which otherwise looks uh, a great Sunni nation. The 100 million Muslims in India have got strong Shiite traditions within them. Um, so it's it's very sort of nuanced. At times, if you, when you first look at it, it looks national. It's all Iranian. But as you look further, it is something that's deep in, in all the medieval states. And there are also divisions within these divisions, aren't there? Like, I'm thinking of um, the different varieties of Shias. I'm like, you, you hear about Twelvers, um, the Ismaili. I find that confusing. Like, could you give us a sense of, of some of that? Yes. I mean, I think the key thing is that all Shia believe in, in Ali, not just as the best of men, but as part of the divine plan. And with that, there's an energy that the whole Muslim revolution of being a caring, compassionate society, looking after the poor and the afflicted would have been enhanced by Shia, by um, a sort of Shia state ruled by Ali. So we're missing not just the rightful ruler, we're missing a sort of, dare I say, revolutionary or certainly sort of populist energy to a ruler. And that's the major thing to share and not to get too excited by theology, but to go into and to answer your question, um, the, the Twelver Shia followed this tradition that um, Ali was succeeded by uh, Hassan Hussein, who passed by selection um, the sort of spiritual authority from Ali down um, through a dynasty of male descendants that goes on for 12 um, generations until the last of the imam disappears in hiding and goes into quite a theologically complex thing, goes into, into sort of spiritual oculation, waiting for the end of the world or waiting for a moment where true Islam is going to be born. But that's not so important as the understanding that the 12th imam has gone and the decision to put into practice what would have been a Shiite Muslim community is in the hands of his regents, which means us humans. So although 12 Islam initially sounds like a rather sort of unbelievable sort of waiting for God or waiting for the Mahdi, it in fact means we follow this tradition, we revere the 12 Imams, and now it's our job as reg spiritual regents, as clergy, as people, as passionate Muslims, to, to put into practice uh, the society. Off from that are the, the, the Zaidi, who are very, very similar um, but they believe um, that you can look at any male descendant of the Prophet Muhammad as the sort of inner core of good Muslims and then choose the best amongst them. And there are 14 qualifications. You've got to be the most pious, the most intellectual, the most brilliant Quranic scholar. You've got to be brave. You've got to be poor. You've got to be totally uncorrupt. So that's a very attractive, to my mind, a very attractive tradition. Zaidi um, Islam exists in Yemen, uh, the Ahuti are perhaps their greatest practitioners, and it's flared up um, at different places in northern Iran, I, um, in Morocco, central Tunisia, Algeria, this idea that the uh, the descendants of the Prophet are the easy qualifying sort of spiritual senate that you choose your leader from. But each generation, you make your own choice. So that is um, that's very attractive. And then um, there's another tradition, um, which is Ismaili, is that um, you can follow a different branch. And the 12th imam is not the last, but there is actually a succession of true imams who rule as the Fatimid caliphs 
and the Aga Khan is the 49th in that lineal tradition. So if you're an Ismaili, you, 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 you see that although persecuted and time and time again uh, defeated and made to suffer, Ismaili have still got their imam um, uh, governing and, and guiding them on, on, the, on the right way. And these are the assassins. Hassani Saba and all that. Uh, obviously, assassins is not what the Ismailis call themselves. <laughs> but yes, after the Fatimid Empire is defeated, um, one of the uh, the heirs goes to the mountains and and teaches people uh, pure Islam from mountaintop fortresses. The most famous one is in Alamut, uh, in uh, those beautiful mountains uh, north of Tehran. Have you been there to Alamut? Yes, very very. Gorgeous there. I was taken by a sort of a Shia British Muslim on a wonderful picnic, insisting we ate the sort of local rice and um, had the right apricot mixed with it. And it's a fortress. And when you go there, you realize it's not a palace. It's a place of, of minimal physical space. And it was one of a string of about 20 castles on these sort of alpine-like peaks. And so any idea that you're looking at a sort of... Uh, a Lord of the Mountains is wrong. It's, it's, it, it looks like a monastery. There's room for water storage, food storage, for a mosque and for a reading room, and that's it, perched on this mountaintop and then eventually destroyed in the 13th century by the, uh, the army of the Mongol Khans. Um, and, you know, in, in sort of mood, uh, I don't want to confuse people too much, but it, it, it seemed irresistible same sort of mythology as the Cathars. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Of, you know, they will survive, their secrets will survive these incredible, inspiring sort of Gothic fortresses, but that were fortresses of the faith, not just of politics. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's what attracted me to that story initially was this romance, like similar to the Cathars and these ruins scattered all across you know, Syria and these other parts of the world from that period. I was supposed to go looking for them at one point. You should, you should. There's um, there's a good Peter Lilly did a good book called The Castles of the Assassins. Um, oh. there, there, uh, some of them, which I've seen, are still in in uh, Syria and Lebanon. Not quite as beautiful. Alamut is the most extraordinary one. And That's what I've to see. Famously, um, did a, an early expedition there, and you can this this um, uh, British Muslim scholar Bruce Winnell, who took us there, my wife and I. Um, did on another trip walk over from Alamut of the mountains down to um, through the forests down to the Caspian Sea uh, to, to get a, a proper feel of it. Well, that'd be an incredible trip. I was in Syria years ago to to write a magazine piece, and we we were initially supposed to go a photographer and myself looking for some of these ruins. And I was hoping to tell this story and camp out in them, you know, get some some atmosphere. But the uh, the intelligence services apparently took took a, a dislike to the idea because we'd be writing about you know assassins and the myths of the hashishin and all this stuff, and they they were concerned about mm -hmm. the uh, image that, that this would. So they beat up my guide and they they kind of threw roadblocks into the story. So it was a an adventure that never was. Yes, I think one would have to camouflage your intent a little bit, um, bit more archaeology, but yeah. um, and you know um, the story about. The, the, the devotees being put into hashish trance is clearly an outside critical point of view. These were followers who deaf, you know, who followed passionately Shiite beliefs, didn't need any sort of magic trickery with drugs. Um, but yes, I agree that would probably annoy the Syrian intelligence service considerably.
Uh, Bernard Lewis wrote about them again, and I mean he he also annoyed the Syrians. Um, and it's plucking a sort of Orientalist strand. From- yeah, this is what's interesting: how this story came about and and why this was projected onto these guys. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to look at one one other major division, one other major cause of division, and it's something you spent a great deal of time exploring in the latter half of the book. You say that although Sunni and Shia divisions within the Middle East are important, they're matched and maybe exceeded by equally strong and enduring divisions based on ethnicity and language. So could you say something about the the rivalry and the current geopolitical struggles for dominance between uh, Arabia, Turkey, and Iran? Yes, I think that's absolutely key. And again, something I've just, I'm now 63, I've been traveling since I was 17 in, in the Muslim world, and you just pick up this thing, just the way that someone will express Turk or something. The There's three big sort of geological ethnic identities in the Middle East. Iran, incredibly proud of its civilization, as old as anything on earth, wonderful language traditions, the first empire, the Persian empire, can with some argument be considered a commonwealth of nations, invented the first coinage, postal service, roads. If you're Iranian, you go, you know, Everywhere you look is glory, the most wonderful poetry, the most wonderful architecture. To be an Iranian is to be part of this sort of absolute adamantine pride in Central Asian culture, which filters out in towards Central Asia and India. They're all sort of share this sort of greater cultural zone of Iran. And I haven't met a Persian who, you know, who might joke about um, bad politicians, but in the end, isn't absolutely defined by um, being Iranian. Um, for those who don't know the Atlas, Iran is a fascinating area, big, glamorous, beautiful alpine mountains capped with snow with little streams running down into the middle of the country, which is this vast desert. So it's broken up into potentially hundreds of beautiful valleys and ancient cities have all um, come out of there. As second people, um, we want to know about and can recognize very quickly is the Arabian Peninsula, that big rectangle. And those who've been fortunate, like Ryan and I, to travel, if you go to southern Turkey, go to a city like Mardin, you're standing on the mountains and you look down at Mesopotamia and you can see there is a geographical frontier of the flatlands of Iraq going right down to Arabia. And this is the land of the Arabs, entirely defined by their language um, shared and delighted with in all times. It's their great tool of vivacity, poetry, delight, wit, everything. Um, um, and so Arabia includes um, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, Amman, Yemen. And by association and later conquest, Egypt and all of North Africa consider Arabia to be their their grandmother culture although we all know that they're actually North African in ethnicity, um, the greater Arab world also extends down now to Somalia and Sudan. So so being Arab is more than just the Arabian Peninsula, but the, the heartland of the, the Arabian world is, is that peninsula. They obviously, as we've been talking about, had their days of glory, this great conquest empire, the caliphs, Prophet Muhammad, Ali, all of the heroes of early Islam are Arab to their fingertips. Traders, but also um, spiritual masters, that wonderful fusion of people who move and talk and walk is, is that Arab tradition. And then um, the third identity expressed by the Republic of Turkey now 
is to be uh, Turks from this Turkic people that come from Central Asia, an area you know, which stretches from the modern, again, that great block, a rectangular of Anatolia, right up into Mongolia to include all the stans of what was um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, are all Turkic pride mingled in a way that I can't fully put my finger on, perhaps you can, where Turkic Central Asian people and Mongol people, do they coexist or is there some slight inner ethnic frontier? But they are the last to become Muslims and create these great conquest empires, Seljuk, Ottoman, on the back of, of, of the Mongol. So th that's how we're going to leave it, um, of, of this Turkic Central Asian people all um, espousing Islam, both Sunni, Shia, Alevi, all sorts of different forms, and the strongest empires um, um, which will conquer the Arabs in the 16th century. And the Arabs look at that as a catastrophe when the Ottoman Empire took over Arabia and are quite sort of, you know, sort of worried about what Iran did to Islam in terms of its intellectualization um, and its sort of architecture and embellishment. And you can see in the traditions of Wahhabi Islam that was incubated in Saudi Arabia as sort of also an Arab pride. We're going to return it. We're going to get rid of the dross of imperial architecture and courtly poetry and forms, and we're going to return things right back to the Quran. We're going to get rid of all of the interface that's been built up over centuries and centuries of Islamic history. We're going to turn things back to Arabia, back to the Arabic language, um, and back to its home ground where Islam came from. And so it made Wahhabism particularly powerful and strong as a sort of beneath the, the context of, 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 of Arab identity. Um, although clearly, and we must be a very emphatic on that there is a strong Christian tradition surviving in Arabia, Jewish Arabs, all sorts of 13 different sorts of, of Christian Arabs. And I've been in churches um, and heard the language of Christ in Syria and in southeastern Turkey. And, you know, one should never forget that, you know, you should not, as an uh, ignorant outsider like myself, ever conflate Arab and Islam. It's, it's all, all three religions are, are, are part of that Arabian heritage. And in their different states now, I'm always looking at the long past, but um, Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, working very close alliance with the Gulf states, is the Arabian heartland with aspirations perhaps to create a confederation of allied Arab peoples. Uh, the Turkish Republic um, doesn't want to acknowledge it, but would like to recover some of the old authority of the Ottoman Empire. Would like to, not as military overlords, but would like to create a working confederation of Turkic peoples going out to Central Asia and reform themselves as one of the great powers of the world. And the Iranians, Iran looks big on the map, but the spiritual, intellectual heritage of Iran extends over northern um, India, over Pakistan, over Afghanistan, over Iraq. And they don't ever want to expand the uh, political military frontiers of Iran. But as we've seen in the last couple of decades, Iranian cultural influence is on the rise everywhere. And so these three are really locked in a very tight, very close opposition to each other. And to make it more complex, they share many things. 
um, borders, frontiers, mm-hmm. and some heroes. And so, is this the the next big sort of uh, geopolitical fault line? Is is the the struggle for supremacy in the in this region between these three big players? I, it's not so much supremacy. I don't think any in their heart of hearts ever want to conquer and make a united Islamic empire. But um, as I go into some detail, which we won't do on this because it just it, it it awaits the reader. There are problems for each of them, um, and you can't just sit still saying, "Oh, I'm an Arab in Arabia and I'm happy," or "I'm a Turk in Turkey and I don't need to do things." Each of these three communities has got an Achilles heel. And if I'm just going to gallop through um, what you'd learn over 420 pages in um, in eastern Saudi Arabia, where all the oil fields are, is a very substantial Shiite minority of Arabs who do not feel well represented by the extreme Wahhabi, um, Salafi nature of Saudi Arabian society. And so they are looking for their own voice eventually. So that makes the Saudis nervous. So they can't allow Iran to be too strong an influence lest something odd happens there. The Turks, um, again, one of the great military powers of the Middle East, very, very good soldiers at every generation, very thorough people in terms of motorways, everything. They do everything very well, um, very efficient people. They've got their own Achilles heel, which is the Kurdish Southeast. It's not Shia, there's a Malevi, which is sort of early, rather lovely sort of um, version of Shia before it becomes too theological. But the Kurds do not feel cherished and loved by the Turks because Kurdish is an Iranian language group and they are just like every other Iranian people, ancient, ancient, proud traditions. They remember that they are descendants from the Median Empire, even before the Persian Empire. So, I mean, Kurds do not want to be second-class citizens of anybody. Being a Kurd is enough. But they are ruled um, mostly in southeastern uh, Turkey, some in northern Syria, some in northern Iraq, and some in western Iran. So that's one of the hidden powder kegs of the Middle East. Will the Kurds ever have their own state? Um, And there are four powers that don't want that to happen. But the one that's most emphatic is Turkey. It doesn't want to lose its southeastern corner, um, which ties in with very recent awful history when Turkey was nearly dismembered by the wicked colonial powers of France and Britain at the end of the First World War. And there are maps showing what we, the British and the French, were planning to do to break up the Ottoman Empire totally and hand it out as parcels of cake to our various allies. And whenever I've spoken to a Turkish, anybody in the Turkish Foreign Office, they've got that map in their mind that that was our intention and perhaps is. So there, theirs is a battle to, to keep Turkey strong. And then the third power that needs to watch itself is Iran. It's got substantial Sunni minorities uh, within um, Iran. But what's most important is Khuzestan, that little bit of also called Arabistan in the old days, Susiana, is that Arabic populated bit near um, Iraq where the Tigris and Euphrates come to the sea. And that's also where all the, well, most of the oil is. Uh, and they are Arab, and that was behind um, the Iran-Iraq war, was the fate of that region. So Iran can't afford to relax its watch. So all of these three powers, as well as having their own ambitions um, to strengthen themselves, need to be diplomatically agile minute by minute to observe what's happening in the Middle East. 
less catastrophe come and maybe the person sitting on the throne that allowed their their identity their nation state to crumble so it's 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 not it's not malevolent people necessarily it's people whose job is to watch over the future of their state i i just had one last question for you uh, when you mentioned the wahhabis when thinking about this the incredible high points of islamic civilization you know cities like damascus or baghdad or cordoba these were cosmopolitan cities, very outward-looking, very confident in their power. But as they declined, they became increasingly conservative, um, homogenous in terms of the peoples who live there, and less tolerant of other faiths. So does does decline drive a return to fundamental religious values, or does fundamentalism result in decline? Really interesting question. It's totally beyond my ken, but I am very interested in Wahhabism, and I can't see it as anything other than a reaction of fairly powerless Arab Bedouin, the people who'd created the whole Muslim civilization, watching themselves be subdued by Turkish, Iranian, Central Asian empires. They also had the humiliation of the annual Hajj, where incredibly wealthy billionaires by today's version would be coming all from India, from Iran, coming and treating them as dirt, as no more than sort of uh, desert guides. Um, and Wahhabism is... is, is it's fully aware of all these complexities. Um, Ibn Wahhab, who founded it, worked in Basra as a young man, which had a very strong um, Shiite identity. And at that time, the whole of the Islamic world was dominated by the wealth and power of the Indian sultanates, Muslim sultanates ruling India. And Wahhabism, I think, is um, their, their destruction of architecture. You know, if you live in the desert, you've got a tent anyway, a mud brick. There's nothing for you to destroy. It's all, you're going to keep that. But it must have been very amusing being a Wahhabist, thinking that things that people were very proud of, like the Taj Mahal, was completely worthless. And, you know, it was um, vain glory. And so you've got some of, and comparisons are always invidious with Christianity, but you've got some of the sort of zeal of um Scottish Presbyterian, which also destroyed the abbeys of old medieval Scotland in exchange for small, demotic, um, elective parishes. But in that case, you can't say that Scotland was other than supercharged by this ability. But outwardly, you can just see what were the great sort of prince bishops of St. Andrews, the great tottering abbey is going to be pulled down. I mean, there's so much destruction if you love medieval Scotland as Presbyterian takes over, but their energy is going to come out in, in, in natural force. And those who, the Wahhabists get, either people who really understand them and see these are people who are really working very hard to return the principles of Islam to its true, charitable, demotic, total equality, or they see them as destructive vandals. Um, but I think what's got to bear... It, it, as in this book, no one's a villain. Uh, you sort of our whole job is to try and understand the motivation. But you know, the Wahhabi when they uh, sack the Shiite cities in in southern Iraq are you know a terrifying force um, in the early nineteenth century. And the one other thing which I think I would love to repeat is the Wahhabis are not interested in the West. They're reforming Islam. They are not in dialogue with Napoleon, Britain or France. They're completely indifferent to what's happening in Europe. They're formed in, in, in the late 18th century out of their own Islamic sensibility. And if any dialogue, it's with what's happening in Shia Iran, what's happening in sort of Mughal India, 
interests them. It's an entirely indigenous revival of Arabic self-confidence in a way. That's very interesting. And this is something that you cover in great detail in the book as well. Uh, so we've only laid the foundations for the regions that you discuss in in such detail. I mean, it's a, it's a, I'm told the book was supposed to be quite a bit longer. It was quite a bit longer than this, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. I heard you exceeded your, your page count by quite a lot. Ryan, as you know, we've spoken on, on other occasions because I'm a publisher and um, publish other people. So you'd have thought I'd known better, but I delivered a book five years late and 250,000 extra words the publishers wanted. <laughs> I got two into the issue and they really just threw up their hands in horror. It was a, over COVID as well. And my long-suffering but rather brilliant, clever wife knew what I should be saying. And I'm afraid has cut this book. Um, I think it's about a quarter of what I delivered. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the cruelty of editors. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much, Barnaby, for walking us through this uh, this incredibly complicated moment in history and one that uh, continues to send shockwaves down to the present. It's, I hope my listeners pick up a copy. It's uh, the, the House Divided. It's such an interesting read. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.